Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Friday, March 31st is here. On today's show, Ben welcomes back the great Kena Collins for Oh What a Week. The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, and so much more. Hey, if you like Ben Jarofsky, he's there. Just go to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this What's Monroe? I got, got to say Friday, and here's why. Actually, it's Oh, What a Week. Our uh, weekly uh, wrap-up of uh, what's going on uh, in in news, in politics, in Chicago, the state, uh, and, uh, of course, the nation. Uh, Kena Collins is joining me. Uh, she's fantastic on the mic. She ran for Congress, the 7th Congressional District against Danny K. Davis. I think she's got a future in the media, but she's it's up to her whether she wants to uh, pursue that. Um uh, but the Monroe in question, of course, is my dear friend uh, and uh, Wednesday guest. Every Wednesday in the Ben Jarofsky show, Monroe Anderson has been pre- predicting Donald Trump would be indicted since roughly. He's been predicting that since 2017. And finally, six years later, Monroe, Monroe, you're right. I will now show uh, the cameras. No one can see this. The headline in today's Sun-Times, Trump indicted. It's such big news that even the Sun-Times broke from its regular coverage of the mayoral election. I, I, come on, Chicago media people. You are pretty funny. You know, I you live in something called the United States of America. I'm as guilty as the rest of you, I know. But we're so obsessed with Chicago. All that matters is our mayoral election. Trump indicted. How does this impact Brandon Johnson and Paul Vows? Detail at 10. You're weird, Chicago. You're weird. And I, you know what? Even though I'm not from Chicago, I share your weirdness. I spent, ladies and gentlemen, I was just telling Keenan this. I spent over a half hour this morning going through an intense phone conversation with a certain alderman. I will not uh, reveal alderman's identity. But we, we took the deep dive. On the council reorganization that went down yesterday, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, I'm not even going to probably use most of this in today's show, and yet I did it. I'm weird. I admit it. I'm weird. Anyway, going back to Monroe and Trump, he was ecstatic. I called him up last night on the phone with him for like 40 minutes. He was doing cartwheels. He's so happy. <laughs> you got to give Monroe credit, ladies and gentlemen. He never blinked. He never bought into the Trump bullshit. He never bought into, you know, that whole, like, that Demi thing. Can we all work together? Some of you Dems were doing that at the outset. I know you were. Uh, Trump gave one speech early on in his presidency where he was quasi-presidential. He, like, toned it down. And then, of course, he immediately blew it by bragging about it. See, I can do presidential stuff, too. But in that, 
in between the time that he was all presidential, like in that speech uh, and the time he bragged about it, Dems were already lining up going, I am impressed. I think David Axelrod was like, fantastic speech. You know, these Dems are always trying to bend over backwards to suck up to Republicans to show that they're like, I am even, I'm open-minded. I'll endorse anybody. I'll talk to anybody. That's kind of Vallis. Paul Vallis, the guy you're about to elect as your mayor, city of Chicago, north side of Chicago. You love him so much that your guy, your MAGA guy. But Paul Vallis is that way. I'll talk to anybody. Oh, an extreme right winger who wants to deny trans people their rights? I'll talk to them. Oh, anti-abortion zealots who uh, want to outlaw abortion? Oh, I'll talk to them. It's all about being open-minded. And it's, by the way, it's working for him. Arnie Duncan has decided that he's going to endorse uh, Paul Vallis for mayor because what? Because he's so extreme in his views on law and order that that's what's going to bring the police over. See, otherwise, <laughs> the police, like, it would, like he'll convince somehow or other John Burge to start torturing people in the dungeons of police stations throughout the city of Chicago. That's kind of like the Demi view on Ballas. There I am making fun of Chicagoans for being utterly obsessed with Chicago politics. And I just went on a riff. I was talking about Trump and somehow or other I came, brought it back to Chicago. Anyway, Monroe was openly jubilant. Uh, and uh, he urged me to watch his beloved MSNBC. Folks, I have a confession to make. I have never watched MSNBC except for on election night. You know, occasionally on election night I watch it. I've never watched it. And we go, man, how could you not watch MSNBC? I'm like, I don't know. I just like, I spend my days reading about politics, talking about politics. I'm not going to watch MSNBC. I don't know. It's just, it's, and also, this is unfair maybe to MSNBC. I humbly apologize. But you guys, it's kind of demi to me. You know what I mean? Like Hillary Clinton demi, and I'm a lefty, and it's like, I don't know. It, uh, God bless you, but I just never watched it. Anyway, so in honor of Monroe, I watched it. Last night I saw, oh, old boy's name, I forget his name, Lawrence, something or other. I can't, I can't remember his name. O'Donnell, I think it is. And then there was a woman who came after him who's, uh, I can't remember her name at all. Doesn't matter. Anyway, they got these guests lined up. I've never seen anything quite like this because I've never watched MSNBC before. So the screen's cut in half and uh, you've got the host, Lawrence O'Donnell, and then you have four headshots of people on Zooms coming in from all over the country. Half of them are in their uh, kitchens. By the way, I noticed this. All the men are in their libraries with their books lined up behind them. And all the women are in their kitchens. I'm like, what's with that? <laughs> I'm just saying, MSNBC. And then, like, I'm watching with my wife. We're both, we, I, we are food junkies. We're like, what do they got to eat in the background of that kitchen? And the one lady, Claire McCaskill, had this delicious cake. And the whole time she's talking, I'm like, God, I'd love a piece of that cake. And then there was a coffee pot next to it. I'm like, make me some coffee. I'll have some cake. It was like 10 o'clock. Anyway, they got the four of them lined up. They're all super smart people. and They're all eager to talk. And uh, they're like, you could just see they're like, I want to talk. And they got to sit there quietly while the other person talks. They got to pretend like they're interested and they're nodding their head. Very interesting. But they're all like, I want to talk. I want to talk. Anyway, MSN, but the thing is, they all said the same thing. This is a serious moment for America. Our democracy is under siege. We must respect the system. It's a jury system. He's innocent and proven guilty. I hope he has the best defense he can possibly get. They all said that. 
they like, you must have like cards you read or you have to like sign a statement. If you go on MSNBC, you gotta be all serious. And I'm like, I don't know any Democrat in the, anywhere who isn't jubilant right now. And we all know, I know, innocent until proven otherwise. I know, I know, but we all know he paid her off. Come on, even Republicans know that. It's like that Chris Rock joke about OJ. Chris Rock's joke was, if you get the white people out of the room, Every black person in America will say, yeah, of course he did it. That's the same thing with Trump and Republicans. Are all the Democrats out of the room? They're all gone. Oh, hell yeah, he did it. He paid off Stormy Daniels. That's what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's a straight up fraud. It's a case of fraud. You know it as well as I do. The man had an affair, a one-night affair. Uh, Stormy Daniels said it was the worst 90 seconds of her life. A one-night affair with Stormy Daniels. Uh, about a week after his wife gave birth. Just think about that, evangelicals for Trump. About a week after his wife gave birth, he had a one-night affair. On the eve of the presidential election in 2016, Stormy Daniels said, if, uh, essentially, you don't pay me off, I'm going public with this story. This was right after he was exposed with the pussy grab tape. Remember that one, Republicans? You still voted for him? And Trump's people were afraid. They're like, that could be a little much. <laughs> that could really push those little squishy suburban women. I don't know which way I'm going to go. Should I go for the fascist? Oh, I don't like Hillary. Going to Hillary. So they said, all right, here, here's what you do, Michael Cohen. Pay her off. And then uh, when the election's over, I'll pay you back with legal fees to make like you did some legal service. Straight up fraud. Michael Cohen already did 13 months for it. Somehow or other, Republicans are like acting as though this is the most egregious miscarriage of justice since what? Since Fred Hampton was killed in his sleep in Chicago in 1969. Oh, wait. Republicans didn't call that a miscarriage of justice. They were cheering it on. You guys are the biggest frauds in the country. I said this the other day on this show. Any north side liberal who votes for Paul Vallis is the biggest fraud in the city of Chicago. But any Republican who considers this a miscarriage of justice and look the other way at like FBI spying on Martin Luther King and taking the tapes and trying to drive him to suicide or killing Fred Hampton in his sleep. You guys are even bigger frauds than north side liberal Democrats who vote for Paul Vallis. There, I said it. So anyway, to answer the question, Monroe wasn't like those talking heads on the MSCB, MSNBC were going, this is a very serious moment for America. Of course, he's entitled to the best defense ever. Oh, really? He's probably going to get that case thrown out of court. He's going to appeal it. going to find some judge in New York who's throw it out of court. It's not like half the criminal defense and defendants in Cook County who like at the mercy of a criminal justice system don't have enough money to buy a lawyer. You're acting like Trump's an innocent little victim was exposed. Even the Republicans were like against Trump. Like this one dude who's quoted in the New York Times, David McIntosh, who is actually working against Trump. He said, quote, we're crossing the Rubicon here by mixing politics and law enforcement. It's a huge, huge mistake and a threat to our democratic process. 
people can disagree about who our leaders should be, but we have a long tradition of not turning it into a criminal process. Dude, what part of what Trump did is legal? You know he did it. <laughs> it would be politicizing the criminal justice system if we continue to look the other way. And I'll say this one thing. One person at MSNBC last night said something that I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I can't remember who it was. I like to give people credit, come up with good things, but I just can't remember. There's so many talking heads. I couldn't remember which one, but they said, if you or I took national secret documents that are ruled as top secret, no one could see them, put them in our basement or attic, wherever Trump had them in Mar-a-Lago, and then defied the feds when they came a calling for those documents, essentially gave the feds the middle finger, you'd be in jail right now. Donnie's still floating free in Mar-a-Lago. So the only miscarriage of justice is the one perpetrated by Republicans. Just look the other way. By the way, Republicans, anyone time you, you worried about the overreach of the feds, when you're going to weigh in on behalf of Michael Joseph Madigan? <laughs> you're awful quiet about that. Michael Joseph Madigan, former Speaker of the House. I'm not crying for him. Don't, uh, that's not my point. My point is, he's uh, he, well. He they're, they're, they got this trial right now here in federal court in Chicago, four Confederates of, of Madigan allegedly, and they're going to use them. I hope to get guilty pleas to go after Michael Joseph Madigan. How come that's not federal overreach? But anything regarding Donald Trump is all right. Without further ado, I'm done for the moment. I'm going to bring on Keena Collins. She's patiently waiting. I know she has a lot to say about this, and she's got a lot of stuff on her mind. Keena, your thoughts on Donald Trump's indictment? I mean, I think my favorite part about all of this, when it initially, you know, kind of broke that the feds were coming after, potentially coming after. I mean, I know this is on the state level um, in New York, what was coming after Donald Trump in these classified files in Mar-a-Lago. You had Candace Owens and Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're like, defund the FBI, abolish the FBI. It's like the left strikes again, right? Like these these opinions uh, that we have in po public policy um, on the left are overwhelmingly popular, even to the Republicans, right? But it's it's almost you know one of those things of when it's suitable for them, right? When it is suitable for them, change the rules, and so. I thought the best response yesterday was from Youssef, who is, I think his last name is Salam, who is from the Exonerated Five in Central Park, where, remember, Donald Trump took out this big ad in the New York Times to just, like, hang these young Black and brown men, just hang them upside down because they beat and raped this white woman, this innocent white woman in Central Park, and then come to find out years later, they did not. They did not participate in that. Um, and all of those fears that the media stokes about young black men being hypersexual, hyperviolent, subpar humans, you know, kind of reared his ugly head. And Youssef simply said in a press release, karma. <laughs> you know? Karma. Um, it is interesting. In in the 2016 election, one of the most resounding chants in all those Trump rallies was lock her up. That was the most resounding 
you know, chant that they had and saying that they had. And now we fast forward over four or five years later and, and he may potentially be going to jail. And I love that it's happening at the helm of a bad black woman, Letitia James, <laughs> um, who is busting this case wide open and saying that, you know, we're, we're going to really hold folks accountable. So I have to join, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Monroe Anderson. <laughs> Let me tell you, older black folks, they may tell you a joke, but they'll never tell you a lie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Maxine Waters was, if you recall, she was the first one to say that Donald Trump needed to be impeached. And people thought she was so extreme for saying that. And she kept consistent to that. And what ended up happening by the end of his presidency? He wasn't impeached once. He was impeached twice yeah. <laughs> by the House. So, um, you know, like I say, older black folks, they might tell you a joke, but they'll never tell you a lie. And uh, I'm with Monroe Anderson. I, I rejoice in this injustice, right? Uh, it, it had to happen, you know, and what is the precedent being set legally if they let Donald Trump off and not hold him accountable when the the evidence is so blatant in our face? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um and let's just break it down politically a little bit. I'll be having a conversation with David Ferris about this later. And uh, uh, Keenan and I have a lot in our plate we want to talk about. But let's just break it down uh, politically before we leave uh, the feds, federal, uh, the, na the nationwide issue goes to Chicago. The, what the Republicans are asking the Democrats to do, essentially, is mm -hmm. overlook all of Trump's crimes. Right. All of them, including in the attempted coup. Just look away at the attempted coup. Look away at the uh, the him openly defying the feds when they asked for their documents back. Not paying taxes. Yeah, the taxes. And then Georgia on the phone. This is one that kills me. Literally on the phone with the secretary of state saying, get rid of the votes. Find the votes I need to be find the votes. Yeah, find them. Literally say, just overlook all that because it would be unseemly and political, Kina, if you uh, prosecuted him. And so you're supposed to look the other way. Pretend that Donald Trump doesn't exist and then allow his enablers like Ron DeSantis mm. just to run free. Like, OK, we're not. The Republicans do not want Democrats even talking about Donald Trump. It's hey, such a bizarre twist the world. Go touch ahead. On that? Ron DeSantis saying that he will not cooperate with the feds and with the federal government to extradite mm -hmm. Donald Trump to New York in the event that this is executed to the full extent. I mean, just talk about high crimes and misdemeanors. This is the same Ron DeSantis that wants to run for president of the United States. I mean, what is the precedent really being set here? And we know what it is. We know that um, because these are wealthy white men who are in positions of power, the rules do not apply to them. They got mad at Obama about wearing a tan suit. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine uh, Tina Chin harboring Barack Obama if he had to <laughs> if be turned over to the feds? Like, I mean, it, it is outrageous. It is outrageous. And I think that, um, yeah. Dems need to take, if ever they needed to take the gloves off, this is the time. 
Yeah. Right. This is not about our feelings about how we feel. This is about the Constitution. This is about the rule of law. This is about the integrity of the government of the United States. So when we're talking about these things, it's not how we feel about it. It's that you're literally a governor of a state is refusing to follow, <laughs> put them in cuffs too. You know, and what is the precedent of that? Like what? What happens when the governor doesn't abide by federal law to extradite a, and harbor a criminal, um, a, a somebody who is potentially breaking the law? But you you want to build that wall, though. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, you know the um, it, obviously uh, Ron DeSantis is really a jam right here uh, because the prosecution of Donald Trump is firing up MAGA. Uh, and makes them love Donald Trump even more. Uh, and Trump's bragging about how this has caused his uh, standing in the polls to rise. Republican polls, not general polls, Republican polls. Like hardcore MAGA people love him even more. Right. Uh, and so the Republican Party was like preaching, we got to leave the past behind. They were speaking in euphemisms. They don't even want to mention Donald Trump's name. We have to leave the past behind. We have to concentrate on the future. So here comes Donnie Trump, the crimes of the past, literally dragging them back to Donald Trump. So you're Ron DeSantis. You know, you got to figure this out. Uh, you, yes, you want to resist extradition proceedings so that you show MAGA you're with Trump. Okay. But Donald Trump, probably doesn't want to give you that grandstanding opportunity. He preferred to be extradited, go to New York, stand in front of the judge. He's already mocked the judge. He's already mocked Alvin Braggs, who's the, uh, the prosecuting attorney. He wants to defy all that because he knows that's going to uh, build his uh, brand name with MAGA. So it's funny, like DeSantis is trying to be uh, out Trump Trump and Trump's going, no, you're not going to out Trump me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't know how any, by the way, uh, MAGA acts like they're the only ones who get to vote in an election. So they're all like, yeah, this wins it for Trump. I'm like, well, you know, there's some called a general election out there. I don't see how this is going to pick up a lot of swing voters. <laughs> Openly, you know, go ahead. What's interesting about the electorate in the MAGA makeup that I hope historians write about, remember all the talk about how there were some folks, I mean, it's not even just talk, it's the numbers. There were people who voted for Obama who are a part of MAGA now. So I think this speaks more to Democrats. What I mean, it, it speaks more to are we really standing on our morals and values? And because we seem so shaky, we can't even hold on to the electorate. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that is the part about MAGA that has always interested me, that there were parts that Hillary Clinton lost that Barack Obama won overwhelmingly. And so where is the link? And, and when you put... <laughs> When we're putting Barack Obama and Donald Trump on a spectrum, it is the furthest of spectrum that you could potentially, you know, think of when we talk about moral character. Um, so, I mean, that's the interesting part that I really want to see people dissect is that 
this we we often forget that part of MAGA are people who voted not once but twice for Barack. Yeah. So what is the what is the underlining thing there? It's communication. It's connecting to the electorate. It's the relational organizing. It's people feeling on the outskirts of our democracy. It's them not trusting the Democratic Party, yeah. right? Because here we have a clear cut side that we're supposed to stand on and you got people towing the line talking about <laughs> you know not going for the jugular talking about let's give him his fair shake in court it's like he's building his own court of public opinion and that is why he is the teflon don because he continues to build his own court of public opinion thumb his nose at the government at the law and he gets off because he's built enough public pressure that gets on his side. I don't know why, you know, we haven't as a party and party leadership hasn't figured out this strategy yet, but this is what, what he always does. This is perfectly in line. You know, um, don't believe your lying eyes, right? Yeah. Like, well, the, the Democrats, uh, and we'll switch it to Chicago, uh, but after this, but I just to follow up what you said, the Democrats generally subscribe and this MSNBC was they, they were doing this in full, full force last night to the Michelle Obama uh, dictum that when they go low, we go high. And uh, Michelle Obama said that, I believe, in the campaign trail in 2016 on behalf of Hillary Clinton. And I guess they thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win that election so they could just overlook uh, Donald Trump's assailing her uh, and the lock him up yeah. threats that you just alluded to. Uh, and um, it didn't work. So I, I just personally, I'm with you. I, I don't see how always going high when they go low is the way to go, uh, politically speaking. And I never see it play that way in Chicago. Well, who, uh, who said that accountability is low, though? You know, like it's that that's the thing. It is the assumption that's holding people to account for their actions. And primarily, let's talk about the elephant and the not-so-elephant in the room, white men in power in particular, who have superseded and shaped American politics for so many centuries, right? So why is it that going low is the form? And I'm not saying that that's what Michelle Obama was saying, but I feel that honestly, when they talk about the AOCs, the Rashida Talibs, the you know Corey Bushes, who hold people to account for their actions in our political system, they're saying that they're going low, but really, it's a bar and a standard of accountability. Mm. Mm. That that's and then it's coming from think about the 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 body and the image of who this accountability is coming from. It's almost like a putting you back in your place, right? For, you know, um, you know, let, let's just like overlook, you know, what they're doing. And I think it's just complete garbage. You know, it's like, no, hold this man to account. This is, this is somebody who has disrespected the disabled communities. It's somebody who's disrespected immigrants, disrespected women, talked about sexual assault, stole money. You all could have impeached him on a monument, you know, long before any of these other things came up. It's someone who has stole, talked about, you know, the, the great lie, stealing an election, and has uh, perpetuated a, a failed coup on our government. Accountability is not going low. 
All right. Uh, so speaking of holding uh, this man accountable, let's switch to Chicago. I know you got uh, uh, some thoughts uh, t- uh, on your mind to say about John Catanzaro, the Fraternal Order of Police, and his declaration to the New York Times uh, the other day. Catanzaro, a big supporter of Paul Vallis. Uh, and uh, the quote was, what was it? Like, there'll be blood in the streets. Uh, is that what the quote was? If uh, Brandon Johnson is elected mayor of city of Chicago, take it away, Keena Collins. Speaking of unruly white men in positions of power, right? Um, John Cantanzaro, like we just, he is the gift that we wish will stop giving uh, <laughs> to the city of Chicago. Um, the New York Times did an article titled Chicago Mayoral Race Pits the, the Teachers Union Against the Police Union. Let's talk about that. Because I think that, like, first of all, nationally, I think people are obsessed with the city of Chicago, right? What happens here? Are we the the second Manhattan of, you know, the United States, or are we headed to being Detroit, right? <laughs> like, what is it? It's never in, in the middle. Um, and in this article, I think that that the New York Times strikes at the heart of something that is really true about the city of Chicago is that in an unparalleled way, we are a union town. Get up, get down, Chicago is a union town. Here is the problem that I kind of have with the framing of this article. How dare anybody in the media pit the Chicago Teachers Union against the FOP? We are talking kindergarten teachers and paraprofessionals against literal police officers in the FOP who have been sympathizers to January 6th, have been sympathizers to um, anti-masking and anti-vaccine rhetoric right here in the city of Chicago. And quite frankly, one that really gets on my nerves is the FOP is the same organization that harbored another criminal, Jason Van Dyke, child murderer, you know, of Laquan McDonald, 17 year old who was shot 16 times by a Chicago police officer. And instead of holding him to account for breaking the law um, and, and even giving him his day in court, they gave him a job, right? And so this is a false equivalency happening about the Chicago Teachers Union being anywhere near the same type of union in character, in action, or deed that the FOP is. Okay, let's move on. Uh, (laughs) John Contazara goes on in the article, uh, and they mentioned all our faves in this article, Ben. They mentioned Bobby Rush. They mentioned Jamal Green. They mentioned everybody that they can. I said, wow, the New York Times really did their homework on what is happening in City So Real, right here in the city of Chicago. I mean, all the characters in this election cycle, they included in this article. But John Cantanzara's uh, quote was the one that caught fire and really has the social media talking has a lot of people talking, but really hasn't held him to account. He says, and I want to make sure that we don't get sued, Ben, so I'm going to use his exact words. Thank you. (laughs) If this guy gets in, this guy, I want y'all to listen to the language this 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 union uh, union rep and president is saying. He is talking about duly, two-time duly elected 
um, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, this guy, as if he's just like some dude standing at the blue line. <laughs> if this guy gets in, we're going to see an exodus like we've never seen before, he said. Before adding, there will be blood in the streets if Johnson wins. Well, this is rich because the whole argument of the FOP and of people who are um, sympathizing with a lot of this fear mongering happening around crime in the city of Chicago is that there is blood in the streets already. As a matter of fact, the clearance rate for homicide currently as it stands is what, 17%, probably less than that. So when we talk about the blood that's happening in the streets, it, it's already occurring. To say that Johnson somehow is going to be the one to uh, to have that happen is disingenuous. It's a lie. But also, like, let's get to the core of that fear mongering because it's it's very insidious. To me, it sounded very similar as we come off talking about Donald Trump, very much giving stand back and stand by vibes. Mm. You know, when when he was asked in the presidential election and debate to denounce the Proud Boys, Donald Trump instead said, stand back and stand by. And what ended up happening was January 6th. And so for me, this is a threat. And in my opinion, this is a threat and it is an, a cost on the people here in the city of Chicago, innocent lives. We're talking children. We're talking elderly people. We're talking working class folks who just go to their nine to five and no one is holding him to account for these words. Um, and so it is not outlandish to say, is this a threat um, that he is making? I know they would like to flip it and say, well, we're saying that the criminals will run wild here in the city of Chicago. But that's your argument already with Lori Lightfoot. Well, Lori Lightfoot's been voted out, right? And by the way, you're the president of the FOP. Uh, why are you not corralling and boosting the morale of police officers in the FOP? This is why I think this is insidious, though, uh, Ben, that he has said there will be blood in the streets. This is the same dude that called Muslim savages who said that they deserve a bullet. This is the same guy that made sexually inappropriate comments on media. This is the same dude that participated in electioneering for Donald Trump in his uniform as a Chicago police officer. And this is the same dude who invited Ron DeSantis to the city of Chicago to speak with the FOP. The same Ron DeSantis that's talking about banning books in our school, you know, ban, uh, you know, racist rhetoric, um, it's banning, ban, banning African-American studies in Florida. So um, he's very, we're very clear on where John Cantazara stands um, politically and what direction he wants to take the city of Chicago in. The question then becomes, why is Paul Vallis being associated with the FOP and somebody like John Cantazara? I don't care how many times he denounces. If it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and one of the other things, you know, before I lead into like my final thought on this is like, let, let's talk about like the actual statistics, because 
they've used Paul Vallis has constantly used this talking point with Brandon Johnson in the debates that Brandon shut the school down for 15 months during COVID-19 and it led to all this bloodshed in the city of Chicago. It's like, dude, literally you were running CPS in one of the most violent eras in the city's history in the 90s. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Yeah. That's an awful talking point. That's number one. Number two, let's go back to COVID because Ben, as you know, my wheelhouse is anti-violence work and being a survivor of everyday gun violence because I live in Austin, born and blossomed in the Austin community. It is one of the best neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. It's a city within the city. In 2020, across the board, it was not just violence, an uptick of violence here in the city of Chicago. It was across the nation where this was happening. And it, it makes you think of the numbers. But here's what's surprising. 25, the top 25 states that experienced the highest spike in homicide rates, all 25 of those states are Republican-led states. We're talking the top five, Missouri, Alabama, Louisiana, Kentucky, right? Mississippi, all of those areas have Republican governors. Not only did they all go for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, but all of those states that I just listed off, um, they have the highest rates of poverty in the nation. The correlation is not that these Democrat-led cities, you know, have this spike in crime. It's that all of these areas that saw the high spikes of homicide have some of the worst education rate ratings in the nation, have some of the worst health care in the nation, have some of the highest rates of poverty in the nation. And what 2020 did was exacerbate that. The pandemic exacerbated poverty, right? The same things that people like Brandon Johnson had been fighting for prior to the pandemic, exacerbated the crime. And so I just like voters to keep that in mind because I think that, you know, 15 months versus decades of piss poor public policy around how we tackle poverty is, <laughs> it just amazes me. Here was the final part of the article and I kind of want to hear your, you know, then I want to hear some of your thoughts, uh, Ben. I thought that this was a really good part of the New York Times article. This was a quote. His presence, meaning John Contanzara's presence, is especially troubling for Black Chicagoans who must balance their concern over violent crime against their troubles with the police department that has been laboring under a federal consent decree after the Justice Department found routine use of excessive use of force. So when we talk about jo John Burge, Another John, <laughs> you know, they don't have a good track record in CPD with these Johns. Um, we're talking about from 1972 to the year that I was born in 1991, over 118 torture cases that the Midnight Crew had took to the Black Ops site right there on my beloved West Side in an abandoned Roebuck building and tortured and coerced people into fake you know, confessions of doing these crimes. Black Chicago finds itself flanked against like this really weird space of like wanting to 
ease the tension of the violent crimes that are happening and the divestment that has happened in our community with the Chicago Police Department and understanding the racist undertones of what it means mm -hmm. to deal with the Chicago Police Department. But my favorite quote <laughs> to wrap up all of this was NBC5, who covered the story. They said, Captain Zara also ignited controversy by urging Chicago police officers to, to defy a city COVID vaccine mandate in 2021. And he had made the same prediction that officers would leave the force because of it. And those predictions largely failing to come to pass. So basically NBC5 saying John Canton is full of hot air. Yeah. Do not believe him that 800 2,000 Chicago police officers are going to leave the force. They are not. But, um, you know, I, I mean, you know the context and the history of the city of Chicago here, Ben. I'd I really love to hear your thoughts on, like, the lack of accountability, but also the fear-mongering that is rearing its head as we hand into the last final days of the election. I It's... Wow, that was a great riff, number one. Uh, number two... How can I say everything I want to say in a coherent fashion without losing my mind? Uh, because as long as I can remember, and this goes back to when I was just following Chicago from afar, uh, reading the newspapers as a kid in Evanston, as long as I can remember, there's been an issue, and I'm just say, stating it as euphemistically as I can, about police brutality in black neighborhoods as long as I can remember. And one of the most seminal moments in my young life that forced me to just kind of like confront the world that I lived in, and I've already mentioned this moment already, was the murder of Fred Hampton mm. that took place December 4th, 1969. And we now know that that, uh, that raid uh, was a joint venture of the FBI, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and the Chicago Police Department with Richard J. Daly in charge. And it took forever, forever for the truth to be told in that tale. And I don't even know if we have the full truth to be told of that tale. And that leads us into, of course, Ralph Metcalf and his congressional campaign where he turned against Daly on the issue of police brutality. And Daly's attitude of criticism from Ralph Metcalf was to run Irwin France against him for Congress. So they punished, they punished a black man for speaking out against police brutality. The machine did. Okay. That's what happened, Chicago. That's your history that yep. you could choose to ignore if you want. Then we move into the 80s and the John Burge crew and Richard Daly in the state's attorney's office somehow or other not noticing that there were these tortures going on and uh, black suspects were being coerced in confessions. And we're still paying off the settlements for the people who were wrongfully jailed, incarcerated because of confessions that were tortured out of them. And this goes into the 90s. That same daily that is elected mayor of the city of Chicago. Oh, God. And, and so Chicago has never faced this issue head on. It always avoids facing it. 
head on Kina by scaring people into believing that any attempt to address the issue of police brutality is somehow or other coddling criminals. And anybody who says that you need to do that is anti-police. And now they call you a defunder. And that's the weapon they use to beat up on you. And I watch politician after politician use it, including this one is so bizarre and twisted and weird. I just I have to shake my head in amazement. Lori Lightfoot using it against Arnie Duncan. And now Arnie Duncan supports Paul. So I'm I'm with you, Kina. I, I, I think mostly yeah. though, there has to be an accountability metric put into place for people like Bobby Rush and J. Maul Green. And I'm gonna call that out. Jamal Green stood on the front lines of a lot of these protests with us when Laquan McDonald happened. I remember when me and Jamal and a small group of us stood outside Rahm Emanuel's house protesting for Laquan McDonald. That was before that was a thing um, in Chicago. At what point do we think, how is it that y'all think the CTU will control Brandon Johnson, but the FOP will not control Paul Vallis. And the argument that Paul Vallis has been making is that, well, the FOP hasn't given me a dollar. They don't need to. <laughs> they have a brand. And the yeah. fact that places like the 19th Ward, where there's nothing but cops that live there, have voted for you overwhelmingly in those places, lets us know that they don't need to donate any, their, their union doesn't need to give you a dollar. But to associate yourself with people who say Muslims deserve a bullet, oh no, like this is, you know, that that's the part, giving the validation to Paul Ballas in these black spaces is treasonous. I don't care in what ways you feel about Brandon Johnson. You could say, well, I don't support Brandon Johnson because I think that the, the CTU will, um, oh, okay, stay out of the race. But to say that Paul Ballas is the better option, knowing the history of the FOP, knowing, you know, I mean, Bobby Rush has equated the FOP to standing shoulder to shoulder with the Klan. That was a quote in this New York Times article. And rightfully so, because just like J. Maul Green was standing with us around Laquan McDonald, Bobby Rush was picking up the pieces after Fred Hampton was gunned down. So, you know, it's just, once again, I think that it's not about, we we have to do better in, in who we allow to gatekeep in these spaces because you you just can't convince me that the CTU is at the same level as the FOP. Uh, no, that's a false equivalency. All right, uh, and I'm going to use uh, this to transition to my, what's on my mind. Uh, and this is the unique flavor of Chicago politics. Uh, so when I read the New York Times coverage of the mayoral election, the same, I read the same article you read, or when I read any out-of-town coverage of Chicago politics. I see that poor reporter. My heart goes out to them trying to make sense of this insane city. And it's so Bobby Rush, a Black Panther, who is Fred Hampton's dear friend. Best friend. 
and comrade uh, is supporting Paul Vallis. It just like it makes no sense. And then wait, if you put it in the context of the other endorsements Bobby Rush has made over the last four years, it really makes no sense. And the shifting rhetoric that he uses and employs uh, in his endorsements. And I got to give a shout out here to Gregory Pratt of the Tribune. Uh, he put shout this out together. To Greg. Yeah, he put it together. And so I got to give him the shout out. I've been using this, his work on this riff for a while. So shout out, Greg. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he, what was it? Bobby Rush started off by endorsing Daly the last two cycles. Daly, William Daly in 2019. I have no idea what that was about. Uh, the, the son of the mayor who was in charge when Fred Hampton was killed, he endorsed him. Uh, then when that was election was over and Daly lost, he turned around and endorsed a Lori Lightfoot over Tony Preckwinkle, excuse me, a Tony Preckwinkle over Lori Lightfoot and said, that uh there i think it was like a blood on your hands reference with him like if any if there's any police shootings in chicago there'll be blood on your hands because somehow or other uh if Lori lightfoot uh was elected that would be like give free license to the fraternal order police to allow shootings then he's allied with Lori lightfoot when uh the cops move into his office if you recall during uh the unrest after uh george floyd's murder i don't know if you remember that popcorn gate when the the policemen yeah. were sitting in his office eating popcorn right. yeah he was outraged at the fraternal order police the fraternal order police is outraged at him you know uh and uh he comes in uh to this election all of a sudden he's endorsing Lori lightfoot who he denounced and as you know that uh a puppet of the Fraternal Order of Police, and now he's endorsing Paul Vallis, who's literally endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police. If you're a New York Times reporter, Keena Collins, how the heck, what what sense does that make? And and somehow or other Chicagoans, we just like go through this political universe where we just like we kind of understand that our uh, politicians are always cutting deals, yeah. uh, that there's no real principle at stake anywhere. It's all what they could get at that moment in that transaction. These are the elected officials. And, um, you know, and it, that may change tomorrow, okay, depending what's on the table tomorrow. It's hard, really hard to see a fixed principle anywhere involved in any of this, if you follow what I'm saying. Uh, but you and I were so used to it. You were born and raised here. This is the city you know. Well, this is right. what you grew <laughs> Literally. I, I know nothing else. <laughs> I went to school in Louisiana. They probably thought I was so crazy sitting in black student union meetings and like <laughs> how we would run, how we would run things. And I'm like, yeah, this is how we're going to do it. It's like we care. It's such a political city, the nonprofit and everybody is the biggest gangster than the next person. Like the nonprofits, the churches, the pastors, the FOP, the mayor, like Everybody is a bigger gangster than the next person sitting next to you that is supposed to be pulling the strings politically in this city. And what's so funny is Carrie, older woman Carrie Austin a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, she had, they had a Black Caucus fundraiser and got interrupted by protesters. And she said, we're the biggest gangsters, you know, in the city. And a few years later, she's being indicted for being a gangster. <laughs> 
No, you I mean, can't write, SNL yeah. could not write this in a, in a more, Shakespeare couldn't write a more Shakespearean tragic ending, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that let's not keep our eyes off of what's happening because Jamal Green is only 27, right? He's only 27. The trajectory of his time in the political arena here in the city of Chicago is not over. It's not even close to being over. And so we we have to remember these things because at the end of the day, Black Chicagoans have voted very moderate. You know, you, you have people like Alderwoman Emma Mitts on the west side, right? And Emma Mitts ushered in the police academy when we don't even have grocery stores on the west side. It's easier for kids to obtain guns and bullets than it is fresh produce in, on the west side. And they put a multi-million dollar, hundreds of million dollar investment into a police academy, right? And so, um, and we don't have schools open, neighborhood schools. So mm. I think this has always been the tragedy, but the heart and the soul of the city of Chicago is resistance. And it has always been um, a spirit of resistance. And so like there's a constant pushing back you know, on this, but at a certain point, when do we say enough is enough and like common sense just needs to be common sense. Um, but I think it's very interesting that the very dominant voices coming out of the black community that are validating Paul Vallis have been men. Like let's, you know, say it. Paul Vallis had a few black women come out, Michelle Harris, uh, Emma Mitts, I think the, uh, the principal- Sophia King. You know, Sophia King. But overwhelmingly, it has been Black men in leadership that have come forth and validated him in a way that otherwise he wouldn't have been validated. Enter Jesse White, right? Enter Email Jones. Enter, you know, all of these, you know, Walter Barnett and all of these people who run very um, prominent and strong IPOs in their wards or, you know, what have you. Willie Wilson, right, who has a strong coalition with Black churches and not just like these mega, mega Black churches, but like the storefront Black churches that are like stringing together this very strong coalition of Black voters who have stayed with Willie Wilson for a very long time. Of course, our boy Richard Boykin, <laughs> Yeah, forget about Richard, Richard Boykin and his French cuffs coming in <laughs> right behind Willie Wilson. You know, um, so it, it, you know, one thing that I actually agree with Danny Davis, he supported Brandon Johnson, you know, so um, it's been interesting to yeah. see political families in the black community who have galvanized around Paul Vallis. And we got to watch it because people think that he can't stave off some of these black or siphon out some of these black votes. Don't you for one second think he can't win some of these wars being run by black aldermen who people respect, who have now come out to endorse Paul Vallis. And so I've been very interested in this battle, right? That we're seeing in the democratic party against somebody like Brandon Johnson, who's talking about, let's talk about the root causes of what, is causing crime and how we solve it versus lock them up 
-hmm. and let's police, police, police this away. But in the earlier stat that I gave you, Ben, about the 25 states with the highest homicide rates being run by Republicans, and then we correlate that back to the city of Chicago, let me remind people, you cannot police poverty away. They have tried it for decades. You cannot police poverty away. Y'all close down the public schools. 10 years later, we see 13 to 17 year olds carjacking. That was 10 years ago. They were three, five and seven years old. You close their public schools down. No public school. You close down the mental health facilities. COVID-19 happens. People don't have access to, to mental health services, right? Um, these issues are just being exacerbated under extenuating circumstances like COVID because we refuse to talk about the root causes, which what that is the heart of the Brandon Johnson campaign. All right. Let, and uh, so you I'm glad you went back to that issue of the uh, the, the red states with the high crime, because that brings to, uh, out another factor. Uh, and I would love I know you want to go here. So uh, it's a perfect transition. Uh, and that is that. Um, the Republican Party and MAGA uh, is opposed to anything resembling gun control. Uh, and I do not know how you could talk about crime in Chicago without talking about the excessive amount of guns that are available uh, to people in the city of Chicago. Uh, and I just think it's it's the same thing. It's like you, you can't talk about crime in Nashville where uh, the shooting happened uh, at that uh, Christian school in Nashville. I forget how many kids were killed. Three kids killed, three teachers killed, I think. Uh, the shooting at schools in Texas, in Colorado, uh, in Connecticut, et cetera, and so forth. But you can't talk guns. Mm -hmm. And I know this is uh, something you feel very passionately about. Uh, this was sort of at the core of, of, of your work before you ran for office and after you ran for office. But... The same forces, I'm just putting this out there, that are vociferously endorsing Paul Vallis, the law and order candidate here in the city of Chicago, are the ones vociferously opposing any kind of gun control measure. And the disconnect in my mind between the, Kina, it's like, that is a leap of illogic that's, that is a, a big leap, even for Chicago. Why don't you just deal with that a little bit? This, like the inability of our country to impose any kind of sane gun restrictions, even in the face of all the carnage that we see on a routine basis, like going into a church and killing people, going into a school and killing people, going into a supermarket in Buffalo and killing people, daily in the killings here in the city of Chicago. You know, they're just outrageous shootings that take little kids shot down. They're collateral damage. I, please help me with this one, Kina. Like the inability to get uh, any kind of meaningful gun uh, legislation through where Congress, state legislatures, anywhere. Go ahead. Well, it's quintessentially the biggest issue that we have in our politics period and why we need to pass that ending citizens united it's big money in politics that's it's the almighty dollar and that's what it comes down to because the 
source of a lot of this problem are gun manufacturers not being held accountable for gun shops and gun manufacturers not being held accountable for who gets access to these guns. And the immediate pivot, and I've been working in the gun violence prevention space for over 15 years, right? This has been an ongoing fight. I have to say that the, the, the movement has grown tremendously from when I was a kid to seeing young people literally occupy the Tennessee state legislature the other day and, and really get in the face of these politicians. These kids are fighting for their lives. They're literally fighting for their lives. Gun violence has now surpassed every other thing, according to the CDC, as the leading cause of death for children in our nation. And the immediate pivot is a cowardice pivot that the GOP and people who are influenced by the gun lobby like to talk about. Well, you know, it's mental illness. It's the fact that they are over-medicating our kids and they're getting access to these guns. No, Canada, China, Russia, all of Europe, South America, everywhere there are people who deal with mental illness. Only in the United States of America do we have this level of mass shooting. Only in the United States of America can somebody go into a classroom of second graders, light it up, kill these kids, and then we do nothing about it. And that should have let us know the spinelessness of our Congress and that moment, not just Sandy Hook, but right here in our back door in the city of Chicago, where we see three-year-olds being gunned down in, in the city, right? Now, on the topic of things like the FOP, where you have John Cantazar inviting people like Ron DeSantis, who wants absolutely no limits to who can get guns. Anybody could get guns. You can bring them into stadiums, into churches, into libraries, into you know places of worship, whatever. The Chicago Police Department in 2020 recovered 10,000 illegal guns on the street of the city of Chicago um, alone for just like violent crimes. 850 of those guns could be traced back to one gun shop in Indiana. Mm -hmm. One. So when people give this like very false narrative here in, in, in the country, in our country about, well, Illinois and Chicago has the top gun laws and the most gun laws. Yeah. But Indiana doesn't, Wisconsin doesn't, Ohio doesn't, Michigan doesn't, Mississippi doesn't. All the states that surround us do not. And you all refuse to do anything. If, if 850 guns were recovered in the city of Chicago and it's being traced back to one gun shop, that gun shop is a problem. Because why do your guns keep being recovered in, in our crimes? And so, um, you know, and all the time that <laughs> I have lobbied on the federal level um, for gun violence prevention, they bring up mental health. And yet these same elected officials will gut health care in this country. The same elected officials will push back on offering more counselors in our school versus uh, SROs or, you know, resource officers instead of actual school counselors and psychotherapists that could intervene and de-escalate situations before they happen. Right. Um, and the number one cause of death is by handguns in our country and it's by suicide, by way of suicide.
That's actually the number one way people are taking their lives with guns. Then you have like the gender-based violence argument where women are overwhelmingly being taken out by guns. They're five times more likely to be taken out by guns by domestic partners in domestic violence disputes. Never gets talked about, right? And so um, this is, you know, this is a failing of, you know, our government officials. People don't want their thoughts and prayers anymore. We want policy and implementation. And all of the elected officials who had the opportunity to act before the last mass shooting did not. But they got time to get on Twitter and talk about thoughts and prayers. And so we um, have to have a radical revolution around holding these elected officials accountable. And the the quickest way, one, is that we got to get big money out of politics. And I know that seems like a really big fight, but it's the most tangible way because you could start voting for candidates who don't take corporate PAC money. That's the first step that you could take, right? Um, because then they're not beholden, right, to to those gun manufacturers in the gun lobby. But to say that the gun lobby that's pumping like three, for example, um, Trump's administration, when he ran for president, over $30 million or $300 million, I'm sorry, was pumped into his campaign from the gun lobby. And so um, this is what we're up, up against. And then the city of Chicago is constantly used as the political punching bag for gun violence, even though we are putting every measure in place to make sure that gun violence doesn't happen here. There's not a single gun shop or shooting range in the city of Chicago. And yet we are the poster children for what is wrong. We are not spreading gun violence to red states. Red states are spreading gun violence to the city of Chicago because we don't have one gun manufacturer <laughs> in the city. So, um, that I, you know, I could go on and on about it, but I think that ultimately this generation that's coming up of young people, I have to say, they are not going for this. Like they are rising up against these politicians. We saw Maxwell Frost win his congressional seat. He's the first Gen Z year. He's 25 years old, kid from Florida, right? A part of March for Our Lives. He um, was a part of a mass shooting and ran for Val Deming's seat as she ran for the U.S. Senate in Florida. He beat out a huge field of established politicians in that race. And I think a huge part of that was his organizing effort that he did with March for Our Lives. So it is becoming the unprecedented single issue for a lot of voters in the country. Well, I will add to uh, your uh, explanation. You had uh, the finances. I would add gerrymandering to that. Hmm. Uh, and um, uh, if you allow Republicans to gerrymander the legislative districts, uh, in such a way where they control it, even if they're a minority of the vote in the state or barely 50-50, uh, then you're going to have one-sided uh, legislation favoring the gun lobby. It, it's just a, a reality, a political reality. Uh, and it's it's so difficult and challenging, Kina, uh, to confront the obstacles that face us with this, uh, with government and politics. It's just overwhelming. It's just the money that's involved, the rules uh, and how they're manipulated, uh, like who the judge is in a, ma in, a, in a case that comes before before a judge, like a gerrymandering case. It's like if you're a rookie, just 
and you're fired up with idealism and you want to get involved and then you get smacked in the face with the reality mm. of of what the system is if you're in chicago and you're trying to come to terms with let's say you're a, uh, a young activist who was fired up uh, to get involved in the aftermath of the Kwame McDonald shooting. And then you see the leaders cut deals with Paul Vallis. It's it, just the level of cynicism yeah. uh, is, is so corrosive. Uh, and I feel like you add it all up and like that's why we have 35 percent turnout tops if we're lucky as i mean literally yeah but I, the reason why i bring up the money though ben is that we got conservatives on both sides of the aisle let's be real democrats have taken money from the nra democrats have voted against the interests of blocking things like and they, and they always focus on assault weapons where the biggest issue of gun violence is happening in community it's not the reason why they are focusing on assault rifle weapons and the mass shootings that happen is because they mostly happen in the suburbs and wealthy white areas a la um you know highland park right here and enter in highland park and we've been seeing highland park be talked about for the last year right um and the mass shooting which was a tragic mass shooting and i ended up building really strong relationships with the survivors of that mass shooting but they will even tell you we heard nothing about the mass shooting in Garfield Park where 14 people were shot and they didn't get any resources, right? I served on Biden's transition team for gun violence prevention task force. And we told them, do not parachute the feds into our community. Fund violence prevention programs and interruption programs. That seems like fluff to them. Mm -hmm. Well, Mass shootings only represent a certain number, percentage, a very minor, minor it's, it's, it's tragic whenever it happens, but it's about one or two percent of shootings that happen in the United States. What we're talking about every single day, we'll turn on the news tomorrow, Ben, and we'll see the list of people who were shot here in the city of Chicago. And so, um, you know, I, I just think that we have to look at this from a lens. It has to be survivor-led, victim-centered, and offender-sensitive. And what I mean by that is in neighborhoods like the city of Chicago, the shooter can live right next door to you. And so how do we alleviate that, right? And so, um, you know, for me, I just like, I get like riled up in this national conversation because the focus is always on the mass shootings and the assault weapons. And it's like, yes, it's not either or, it's in both. Yeah, it's both. It's uh, they're all tied together. All right, we've run out of time. We have uh, uh, one last item uh, to discuss. Uh, we'll be really brief with this. Uh, Bernie Sanders came to Chicago yesterday on behalf of uh, Brandon Johnson. There was a boisterous rally uh, at UIC, uh, and there were Vallis supporters outside. I don't know if you saw this with the picture with their both for Vallis signs. Uh, yeah, uh, and. Um, <laughs> screaming at the people as uh, they went in, including one of the guys uh, that was there with the waving the sign was a um, uh, indicted by a grand jury uh, at, for the January 6th insurrection. So I just, wow. think, yeah, yeah, that's some pretty deep stuff. Uh, but anyway, so uh, we'll close uh, with this. Uh, Bernie Sanders coming to Chicago for Brandon Johnson. Will it uh, be enough to uh, help uh, Brandon prevail? Or do you think it will have no impact whatsoever? Keena Collins, go. 
Oh, I'm very proud of our guy, Bernie, coming out for Brandon. You know, not sitting on the sidelines. Chicago just scares me. You know, what I will say is that Bernie in the last midterm election endorsed Delia Ramirez, Jonathan Jackson, and they both won in big fashions. So um, I think Bernie has a base here in the city of Chicago. Brandon is doing really well amongst black voters. So I don't know if that is necessary. Of course, he courts black voters and sits with us. But I think we are um, uniformed behind Brandon. It's a turnout game. And I think that Bernie showing up is showing the momentum that Brandon Johnson's campaign has. I say that it's a plus. It's a net for Brandon. And, you know, hopefully the people who were considering sitting on the sideline pop out and this race could literally come down to one or two wards. And so um, if Brandon Johnson wins, we got to we got to give the Bernie bros some credit. (laughs) (laughs) Bernie bros. Uh, All right. I'll close with this. Uh, Yes. Shout out Bernie Sanders for taking a stand, being true uh to your principles and uh, in contrast shame 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 is the old song from the 60s uh once put it shame 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 on richard durbin Oof. uh senator our senator in illinois supposedly a liberal uh endorsing paul Valls. don't don't get involved at all in my humble opinion and then you're going to turn all you dabs are going to be turned into the teachers unions of the world for support Come when on. you're running in contested states and, <laughs> and you're going to the yeah. defunders, they're going to turn to the defunders to show out to the polls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You guys. <laughs> yeah. Now vote for me. Yeah, I know. I wasn't there for you, uh, <laughs> teachers. Oh, my goodness. Try to make sense out of Chicago politics. Keena Collins, uh, thank you so much. It's always a blast talking to you. Uh, and uh, you know your stuff. Great riffs. Uh, also want to thank uh, the man, the miss, producer Chris, doing an outstanding job as he always does. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. Don't forget, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. And find the Ben Jarofsky show all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.